This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Christina Buttons is an independent journalist who writes about gender, pseudoscience, mental health, autism, and critical thinking. She advocates for early autism screening and education, and a model of transition care that prioritizes thorough, individualized assessments that explore gender-related distress. Here is our conversation with Christina. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I'm Aaron Kimberly here with my co-host, Darren Terrell. Uh, and we're really uh, delighted to have Christina Buttons with us here today, who's recently joined our team as an advisor um, on the heels of an article that she wrote about the connection between gender dysphoria and autism, which was a fascinating and really helpful um, article. So thanks so much for being here with us, Christina. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really like what you guys are doing. Yeah, I appreciate what that. Yeah, and uh, you've written quite a number of of really fantastic articles on the topic. And actually, before we talk about your, um, you know, your most recent article about autism, um, you had been writing for the for the Daily Wire until recently, um, and and then decided to to leave them. I wonder if maybe we could start with that because you did write some really great articles for them. Um, but it sounds like there was a bit of a of a rift there. Can you just kind of explain to us what had happened? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not, you know, your typical kind of person you'd expect to be writing for a conservative conservative news outlet. I, I come from the left. Um, I'm I guess what you would call kind of disaffected from the Democrat Party. Uh because of how they've endorsed, you know, the affirmative model of care and pediatric medical transition. And uh, it was mainly like the reporting that I saw coming from mainstream media that didn't add up. And I, I thought there was a real need for, you know, like objective and, um, you know, fair reporting on these issues. So that um, I was approached by a few different conservative outlets to write for them. And um, the Daily Wire asked me to, you know, exclusively cover this issue. And that seems like something I was open to doing. Um, I I liked what they had done with the What is a Woman movie where, you know, it, it didn't come and it wasn't, you know, aggressive. It didn't like try to insult anybody. It just sort of let other people talk and sort of show you know, what they think. And I thought that was, you know, I thought that was clever. So I was open to, to working with them in the beginning. Um, but there were, there were things that made me uncomfortable and want to leave eventually. What kind of things were, were, were that were that you see in, in the daily wire? Like in the last few months, um, people have I've, and I've noticed it all across the board too with conservatives they're just and I, I understand their frustration and their fear like I get it like when a lot of these people have children and they feel overwhelmed 
by what they see on their timelines and they just sort of veer into this extreme belief where it's you know all all transgender people or transsexual people are bad and um when they start you know dunking on people um i mean it just it didn't really feel very productive i feel like you know we have a lot of great arguments and we have evidence on our side uh i just don't feel like it, it's necessary or helpful to the situation to play into you know what the left says about the right like they're all you know anti-trans transphobes it's like just don't give that to them um so i just i think there's a better way to go about it i'd, I'd rather just stick to the facts yeah agreed yeah. yeah it's so it's so seems so counterproductive that that approach that they're taking yeah like you're saying you're you're handing it back to the left saying yep you're right these are just hateful bigots you can see by the way that they're acting by the way that they're um engaging that that's where they're coming from and it's not a place mm -hmm. of you know genuine concern um it's it's just um yeah uh, yeah an expression of bigotry yeah, they're, yeah they're, i just yeah. saw a post last night by a, a prominent influencer conservative influencer that was justifying you know yes i'm transphobic where we should be transphobic because you know they're all like this they're all i mean comparing like the i i think the you know the the recent shooting in nashville and sort of applying that across the board like i i think that's wrong like you wouldn't do that to any population of people you wouldn't accuse you know all any any particular group of a crime that a few individuals committed like it's it's just this is just mm -hmm. basic stuff mm -hmm. yeah know? and there and there are people who also seem like they were more nuanced and had a more holistic approach to all this and then the more yeah, I mean, I think it is in response, obviously, to the the, the, the radicalization or the the kind of the the extremist um, approach of the of the of the left faction of activists. A lot of the people who were more uh, kind of kind of um, uh, nuanced and reasonably gender critical have become basically just yeah hardcore transphobes uh, in, in response. It doesn't uh, it doesn't jive with what I seem thought I understood of that person, you know, or these people uh, previously. But anyway, that's a yeah, going on reminds a me there. a little bit of like what happened in 2020 when people on the left saw instances of like police brutality in their timelines perpetually and came to believe that we had like a racism pandemic and you know took to the streets and you know what happened after that I mean it's it also is you know our social media timelines if you're in a yeah. gender critical space, you're only going to see, you know, the worst kinds of people, the worst behavior. And then you come to believe like, oh, my God, this is overwhelming. They're all like this. And they forget, like, there are millions of people who call themselves transgender or transsexual. Like, that's it's not a representative sample of the whole population of people. And I want and I feel like this is important to remind others of it's. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the average, what I would call transsexual, you know, people that are just trying to integrate into society. I, I mean, we're not the don't tend to be the ones that people hear from because we're just getting on with our lives and we're trying to integrate into society, right? So we're not holding a big banner and we're not trying to disrupt our communities and our society. And so we're not, you know, I think we're probably the majority, mm -hmm. but we're a silent majority because we're just 
working and raising our families and getting on with our, our lives. Right. And so those that have, uh, you know, that, that seem to thrive on creating disruption and, and needing attention. And they're the ones that they get all the media attention and really mm-hmm. misrepresent exactly the average person. And if I feel like it comes at a personal cost too to be like a voice of reason in a community that's like increasingly becoming more unreasonable. Like you get, I mean, I try to have some moderate reasonable views sometimes and sort of apply like the same criticism across the board to everybody. And sometimes those takes come at a personal cost. Like it, it, (laughs) it ruins my day. Um, If I'm like responding to people misrepresenting my views online and you know you lose hundreds of followers like it's it's not it's it comes at a personal cost so it's like why why would I do that you know like it if unless it's something you really are passionate about I do follow Matt Matt Walsh and I mean some of his stuff he's definitely more conservative than I am I would say more central but um you know he's he's produced some stuff that I agreed with that I thought was pretty mm-hmm. tasteful and then but it does seem like recently he's becoming more and more more and more extreme in his views and I don't know if it's I don't know if that's a tactical strategy I don't know if he's just becoming radicalized by media or, or what that what that is but I mean that would just as an example one of his posts was quoting scripture um that Jesus had said to the disciples, you know, any, anyone who harms children, it would be better for him to be drowned in the sea. And he said, but if I ever said that about any of these trans activists, you know, you would, you would come after me as, 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 (laughs) as being, as being really, really evil, but that's such a distortion of scripture. Like, even if that's what, what you believe in, and I, I am a Christian, but that's such a distortion of, of scripture because Jesus never told his, his disciples, see that sinner over there? I want you to drown him. That yeah. wasn't that wasn't the message. Not, there's no example of the disciples going around murdering people because they were sinners. Um, so this idea that, because that's that seemed to be the shift for him of, of rather than talking about generalities and ideologies, that he started targeting individuals in his mm-hmm. messaging and, and really going after individuals and so that seems to be his justification for it. And, and I, I don't know if he, I think if he's using scripture to justify going after individuals and targeting individuals, I, I really think he's, he needs to go back to his Bible and, and actually read it and, and understand it. Um, yeah. I see him constant, him and the other daily wire personalities are constantly conflating gender ideology with gender dysphoria. And they say, Oh, it's an all uh-huh, a delusion. Uh-huh. I don't want to, you know, support any kind of delusion of any kind. I, yeah, I've noticed that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm noticing that more and more. It seems that more and more people are saying gender dysphoria doesn't exist. Yeah, and yeah, I fault the trans. Like... Yeah, and I fault trans activists for that because it's really well, the same thing. It, yeah, the trans activists have have wanted to erase that you know our understanding and our knowledge of gender dysphoria from the books as well saying well this isn't pathology this is just natural diversity so we've got both sides denying that gender dysphoria exists and so here we are the gender dysphoria alliance trying to educate about what gender does and trying to understand ourselves what gender dysphoria is it's really frustrating when it seems like the majority of people out there don't even believe that gender dysphoria exists 
Yeah, you're right. And that it's true. Um, activists have had a hand in trying to sort of remove it as like a meaningful diagnosis and veer towards, you know, it being like an identity or something like that. And that anybody can sort of just self-identify into. It's like the definition of transgender now is changed and like our major institutions are defining it as like an umbrella term that just sort of encompasses mere nonconformity to to stereotypes about sex and it's like that that includes everybody <laughs> anybody who wants to be seen that way so it's yeah i think i think what you guys are doing is really cool and important um <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed recently, too, a bit of a shift is people going after the word gender dysphoria, like gender dysphoria doesn't exist because gender doesn't exist. So it's coming from the, the gender yeah. abolitionists. But I didn't I didn't create the label for gender dysphoria. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's not just something that we created and made up and we're calling it. Gen I mean, I don't really like the term gender dysphoria either. I think sex dysphoria makes more sense to me. But yeah, but we didn't create that label. And I am. A healthcare provider, I can't start making up labels for diagnosis. I, you know, I have to uh -huh. use, I have to use the labels that exist. And gender dysphoria is how it's, is what it was named in the DSM. And, and so I feel like that's what we have to use. If we start making up words, then, then yeah, people won't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, no one knows. And both sides, the gender criticals and the trans activists are, are always playing this language game of making up their own terms all the time. And uh -huh. mm -hmm. So we're trying to avoid that by just saying, well, this is what it's called, whether we like it or not. That's that's how it's listed as a diagnostic category. And that's what we're going to going to use. But No, I think that's a great idea. You're reclaiming it. Um, I think that that's something that's needed. So as far as so the, what, sorry, go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to kind of kind of throw throw a spanner in here. Why aren't you trans? Christina. Uh, I'm I'm quite certain I would have been if you know this were around when I was a teenager. I mean when you know the the belief that if you don't conform to sex-based stereotypes, you're transgender. I I mean I'm not transgender because I don't have gender dysphoria, but I prob I had some kind of body dysmorphia when I was a teenager for sure. And I think if any, if someone had introduced the idea to me, like, oh, all your problems are because you were born in the wrong body, uh, I think I would have latched onto that. And I feel pretty certain of that. Uh, your article about um, how autism traits can be mistaken for gender dysphoria, I mean, I found that very informative. I, I really appreciated how you, how you outlined that, um, especially towards the end of that article. And we'll link your article uh, to our liner notes so people can check that out. But towards the end, you really kind of listed out very specific things, specific traits that of autism that could lead someone to gender dysphoria. And I thought that was really insightful and, and informative and, and helpful. And I learned a lot from that. Aaron and I have both sort of, neither of us have been ever been diagnosed with, with autism, but we've had a number of guests on that have been, who've talked about, about their symptoms. And the more I learn about it, the more I kind of wonder if I'm somewhere on the spectrum that's so, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are, I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of detransitioners. I, I began writing about these issues, you know, because I felt a strong connection to detransitioners. So many of them 
are also finding out that they're on the spectrum. And I know what that's like, because when I was a teenager, I, I didn't receive a diagnosis until I was 30. Um, and I always felt like something was wrong with me. And I was always looking for an explanation and I was trying on all kinds of different diagnoses to sort of see what fit. And I can see how easily someone might believe, come to believe that they might have gender dysphoria if they don't. But I mean, it's different for everybody has a different experience. You know, it's for some people, it you know, it works and for others, it doesn't. But I feel like an earlier autism diagnosis might help people sort of figure out what what is going to work for them. Can we talk about those those specific traits that you outlined in the article? Yeah, well, I said that some of the attributes that can lead to confusion over their gender include sort of their identity issues, rigid or black and white thinking, intense and restricted interests, gender nonconforming behavior, social difficulties, and which come with sort of like a preference for online socialization and incongruence with their body and other kind of comorbidities. I mean, there is a, um, a fairly well-established relationship between gender dysphoria and, and autism. Uh, I mean, that's been in the literature now for for quite a number of years, and I don't think anyone... I mean, there's, I guess there's hypotheses, hypotheses about what, what that relationship is, but, you know, no one's ever really nailed that down. And it, it just, it, it's amazing to me that screening for autism isn't just standard practice when people come to gender clinics. It's, you know, knowing that that, that correlation is so strong, you, th you would think that that would be just part of you know, the upfront screening process to, to, if someone doesn't already have a diagnosis to do the screening and do a diagnosis, but it's, it's surprisingly difficult to get a diagnosis, especially for adults. I mean, with children, yeah. and I'm sure it's different in various places, but in BC, children could get um, an autism assessment done for free. It was covered by our, our health, our provincial health plan, but there's usually only maybe one person in a city that can do the do the assessments, and so the wait lists are ridiculously long. And for adults, um, it's very difficult to get screening done, and you have to pay out of pocket something like three grand to get to get the assessment. Oh, wow. So you got you got an assessment as an adult. So was that was that covered by your insurance plan, or did you have to pay for that out of pocket? Yeah, no. At the time, I was living in California, and that was covered. Yeah, I I saw a psychiatrist and I got a diagnosis then. Um, but it, it for, for, for people who do not, I mean, I sort of, I'm not sure if this is entirely responsible, but maybe partly responsible when Asperger's was sort of merged into an autism spectrum disorder, I think like in 2013, I mean, a lot of people associate autism with an intellectual disability, and um, so they might not realize that they have Asperger's or that they're on the spectrum, and so they might not get, they might not look for it. And for girls especially, too, I mean, it was, autism until recently was thought of as sort of like a boy's diagnosis, 
and the sex ratio was believed to be sort of, you know, four males to every one female. And now they're realizing it might be a lot more evenly matched than previously believed. Um, and that's because females tend to mask their symptoms better and their, their interests are a little bit less obscure. They tend to be more, have, have fixed interests that have to do more with like people or animals, things that don't seem, you know, stereotypically autistic, like, you know, train schedules Trains. and things like that. <laughs> that's, a, that's everybody's favorite example. I mean, there's, there are people, there are autistic guys like that, like train schedules. So uh, yeah, they tend to fly under the radar and, and not get a diagnosis sometimes until adulthood. And what they, they know that they're different from everybody else. And they, they want an explanation for why, because I mean, for me personally, I'm, I've always been kind of like a very problem solution oriented. So I was always like, if thinking, if I could just figure out what it is, then I could get treated for it. And then I can have a normal life and blend in and, and make friends and be like everybody else. Um, and it became really important to me to figure out what it was, but I, you know, I, I had all kinds of different explanations. Uh, they didn't really seem to fit. And then I, finally uh it was 30 when I got a diagnosis and everything made sense my entire life made sense after that and it's it's vastly improved too having a having a diagnosis and it doesn't I mean I I don't let autism sort of interfere with my life it's not a huge central part of my identity it's helpful for other people to know that I have it um but it also like I I just I learned to to deal with it and it doesn't I don't let it interfere with my life. So are you finding that there are supports and resources that have been helpful now that you have that diagnosis? Resources? Um I well, I mean, there's a lot more people talking about it now. Um, there's a lot more resources than are there used to be even a few years ago. There's a lot more research being conducted into it, but um, there definitely needs to be more. And I mean, I really think kids would benefit getting screened for it earlier. One of the things that made me kind of solidify the, just the, the, the serious differences between male and female psychology was reading about the different presentations of autism or ASD in, in, in boys versus girls. It becomes very, very, even though obviously they're exhibiting, you know, it's sort of like the, the baseline same neurodivergent uh, um, issue or however you want to phrase that. But yeah, how it presents, how that is experienced is so different actually between the boys and the girls. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's at, you know, you know, toddlerhood and younger. It, it's, so it's not something, or, or a little later, it's not something that's, that, 
that could reasonably be explained as socially or like developmentally learned um, uh, was just really, really fascinating to me. Like, the, the, yeah, like you said, the girls having these same kind of fixed obsessive interests, but they go under the radar because they're just less weird and, and mm -hmm. obscure than the boys' interests. And girls are much more naturally um, socially minded and socially concerned. So they're going to be automatically altering their behavior and trying to mimic their peers yeah. and fit in with their peers to not be socially ostracized. Whereas the boys, they, they'll feel the, the, the bullying and the ramifications of not fitting in socially, but it doesn't innately occur to them to try to learn how to fit in, uh, whereas it does for girls. I remember, so again, one of the things that re makes me realize, okay, that was, I probably am on the spectrum is, and I used to use this as a concrete definite or ex explanation of why, you know, I had a male brain was that growing up, I used to always watch girls and figure out how they were behaving and why they were doing it and just trying to mimic everything that they were doing as kind mm -hmm. of like, and I, I saw it as, and I look, looking back as like, I, I was observing them like an anthropologist, not like I was one of them. And so obviously <laughs> in my, in my, in my uh, uh, gender uh, immersed brain, it's like, oh, obviously that's because I had a male brain. You know, I was really a boy oh. who was trying to learn how to be a girl when no, really, I was probably just a, you know, an Aspie kid <laughs> trying to figure out how to be a normal kid. That makes sense. But yeah, again, that's self-diagnosing. So, so take it with a grain of salt, you know. No, I, I mean that that lines up with a lot of what I was thinking too. Where even if if you if you don't feel like you fit in with your peers, you might feel like you fit in with um, the opposite sex better. Well, yeah, and yeah, boys are just so much easier to to, to yeah. They're so much easier. Yeah, I had that experience too growing up. I. I, I didn't fit in with groups of girls and uh, my preference was for hanging out with guys. They were much, much easier to, to deal with. Yep. When Jordan, boards, place when boards. Jordan, yeah. I don't know if you either of you saw that interview that Jordan Peterson did with Chloe Cole, but he talked about yeah. autism and, and how girls with autism tend to have more male pattern, male typical interests, like more interested in objects and things than in people which I definitely related to. I mean, I was more, much more, I would rather go ride horses or draw or, or work with my hands with objects. I always feel so much relief, emotional relief, because I feel socially an anxious a lot, but I feel so much relief just having, working with my hands, like doing woodworking or, or drawing or, you know, creating something. It just feels tangible and real because I can, I can float in my head with such abstract stuff you know to to my peril um so what he was how he was describing autism and girls made sense to me that 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 because your if your interests are more male typical you would naturally gravitate to hanging out with boys who are also interested in things more than than people and so that that definitely mapped onto my childhood experience yeah that makes sense too i mean autism can look like can sort of present in all different kinds of ways. And it's a lot more common than we once realized. Um, I, I think I, if we, if we start doing the whole like screening for autism, because people are like, Oh, there's so there's this, this weird overlap between autism and gender dysphoria. And let's figure out what is autism before we can diagnose that is gender dysphoria. Honestly, I think the vast majority of gender dysphoria is a result of autism spectrum traits i don't I, I don't think it's a case of oh what's which is which i think it's very much a case of of 
the one creating the other. And I don't think gender dysphoria creates autism. I'll, I'll put it that way. And that's how I used Sorry, to see I it, though. I used to think right. because I'm gender dysphoric, social interactions are awkward. And I'd, so I didn't develop social skills. That's how I always read it for my entire life is that the primary issue was gender dysphoria that created autistic-like traits because I avoided social situations. Well, here's something I sort of was thinking about last night. Um, so gender dysphoria too, it's like, let me see if I can figure out how to word this. With gender dysphoria, you know, it's an explanation, but it's also a solution. So like if, if yeah. you're diagnosed with something like autism or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, you know, there's not really like a, a viable treatment solution, cure fix for that. But if we're talking about like gender dysphoria, you know, you get the diagnosis, you have the explanation for why you're feeling distressed and you're unhappy with life and then you transition and then that's that's mm -hmm. the fix and you view so many videos online of people youtube on tiktok who are happy after they transition and they describe euphoria and it's it's a very like attractive diagnosis for some people i think um because the 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 outcomes for you know many other explanations or or disorders out there like they're they're not as um they don't um i think you know what i'm saying like they yeah they, they, they don't outcome, offer anything yeah i mean it's like you you can be on medication for the rest of your life but you're still just sort of like out there um i'm gonna write an article about this so i'm i'm gonna have a better way of describing it this was just sort of something i've thought of last night it's a really uh, good it, point yeah it is yeah yeah like like so the all these different diagnoses yeah they, they offer an explanation okay great so this this explains why i feel this way or why i've always been like this okay i can take this medication and like say schizophrenia or situations like that where there is a medication um but yeah you're just sort of on so your that own. It's, not like, it's like go happy yeah. have a, here's a medication good luck um yeah, yeah. but it's still you're still left with I mean I'm somebody who had pretty severe depression growing up especially just sort of not knowing how to manage life or function at the level of my peers and really slow self-esteem but changing your thinking you know through cognitive behavioral therapy is really helpful um but like changing your thinking patterns is like thoughts that you've had your entire life that's really hard work it takes a lot of work um you know to catch the cognitive distortions and to and to tell yourself no i'm not going to go down this spiral into sadness and stoicism philosophy stoic philosophy actually really helped me too which is think is like what cognitive behavioral therapy is sort of like influenced by and just you know not letting things affect you not allowing yourself to, you know, have an emotional response to something and being in control. I found that really helpful, but it's also really hard work. Um, and so I think 
for a lot of people who have stuff going on with them, whatever it may be, I feel like gender dysphoria or being transgender can be kind of an attractive diagnosis because it's it explains everything and it also offers an actual like treatment and solution. Once you transition, you'll be better. You'll be in the right body. You'll be whole or whatever, you know, the, there's a lot of appeal to it. I think that, um, that other diagnoses don't seem to have. And there's also, you know, like a whole, you know, you get a community embrace you and, um, all of the other things. So there's yeah, it comes with mm-hmm. a whole community, a whole like a whole political movement, like a righteous, a righteous, holy war to affiliate mm-hmm. yourself with, along with the diagnosis and the solution. And it's like it, it's no wonder. I think in one of our earlier episodes, we described it as like a it's a black hole. You know, it's like anything that can make especially a young person feel distressed about their body or they're uh, or being isolated or not really knowing how to fit in or or yeah, because of, say, you know, um, neurodivergence or a, a mental health disorder or whatever, it, it catches everything. And it yeah, as you're saying, it provides yeah the solution and and a whole um, yeah, it, it solves your it solves your isolation. Yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things they think is sort of contributing to this sort of, I mean, there's a lot of, or there's millions of people now who have adopted a transgender identity, whether or not they actually have gender dysphoria. Um, that's That's one of the reasons I think. And these days, the messaging is 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 very overt that you don't need gender dysphoria to be trans. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a website, um, one of our um, health authorities website about trans health. It even goes as far as to say you don't even have to be trans to access gender affirming care. So it, yeah. it just seems like that black hole that you described, Aaron, that black hole is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like, at this point, it's like, you know, the, the idea of gatekeeping is seen as such so sacrilegious that now it's, it's just opened up to what, yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever, any reason. Gatekeeping, but it's like, I mean, these are safeguards that are put in place to, to help prevent people from, from making mistakes. And so that, you know, you have more time to, to think about these decisions. I mean, I think gender dysphoria too, even in the DSM, I think it, it says that you only need to have it for six months, I think. Uh-huh. I mean, does that seem like a short amount of time? That seems like a very short amount of time. You know, <laughs> I mean, they not many people get, have access to the DSM. So most people can, can see, I mean, you can look up online the, the diagnostic criteria, but what most people don't have access to is the descriptive part of the chapter after that you know, bullet form diagnostic criteria where yeah. they actually do describe the different developmental pathways to gender dysphoria. And that's yeah. where they do describe the childhood onset, which is correlated with homosexuality and autogynephilia. And then the uh, small number of people with DSDs decide to, to change their sex. And, mm-hmm. and they, so those three pathways are pretty well articulated in that chapter, but that's not the part that, that the public has access to. And yeah, so it, I actually it, haven't read it. So I, it's it's funny. I'm to only me. familiar with the bullet points. 
So it's funny to me when I when we, when we when we talk about you know these different developmental pathways, you kind of get two different reactions. The trans activists say that's just bogus and and you know debunked, and then you got the other side saying, "Wow, what a radical new idea!" It's like, but it's right there in the DSM. It's been like, there all along. <laughs> it's been there all along. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So the idea, like what the six months gender dysphoria, I mean, which developmental pathway would that apply to? Because you've got the childhood onset, which usually starts around age three, that most of those kids, you know, have it for many, many years and grow it through adolescence. So that doesn't really fit with a six month gender dysphoria. So and then the autogynophilic right. type, which would emerge in adolescence. I don't know. And I mean, could that develop into gender dysphoria in a six month period? Like, I just try to think of which of these developmental pathways justifies only a six month onset of gender dysphoria. So that, that doesn't really correlate with, to me. I think Lisa Whitman coined a term that describes it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's the only one. But, but, but it doesn't exist. (laughs) Well, I think the other, maybe they'll write another developmental pathway is autism. But we can, um, I can, I can try to explain some of those more. So with like the rigid thinking is, is back to what I was saying before about, um, you know, there's an ex autistic people in general tend to like sort of simplistic explanations for things. And what I was saying earlier about, um, you know, being transgender is that explanation transition is the solution. Um, and just- yeah, I think I think the rigid thinking aspect, I think, is very relevant because one of the things that that the trans ideology provides is this very sort of simplistic framework to understand their experience. Right. If they just and we've talked about this a little bit on our podcast before with some of the kids that are really lonely and they see this community where there's there's like this set of rules you know, if you just use these right pronouns and, and so you just sort of memory, memorize these pronouns and behave and, and think this certain way, it's very, it is very rigid and prescriptive. And um, if they just learn a set of rules, then they have access to this peer group. I, I can see yeah. the appeal yeah. for someone who is struggling with social skills. And um, the special interests too. Uh, uh-huh. I talked to about close to 50 detransitioners for the article I was writing and what was interesting most of them had not been diagnosed until with autism until after the detransition but five um had had a childhood diagnosis but they all five told me that you know that gender identity and transgender issues had become sort of a special interest for them and they all told me that um, had they sort of known more about how autistic traits could present as gender dysphoria, they may never have believed themselves to be transgender at all because they they became sort of like fixated on this mm-hmm. issue. I mean, a lot of people with autism are struggle with identity, you know, trying to figure out who they are and you know, they're looking for an explanation and a reason. And there's a lot of research too that shows that um, autistic people have more gender non-conforming traits and uh, social difficulties, of course. Um, 
what back to what I was talking about earlier with uh, not fitting in with them, their peer group and sort of uh, gravitating towards the opposite sex. I was, I was seeing even before the whole trans explosion and and people were really seeing the correlation between you know autism and and gender dysphoria or or people transitioning even before so it was, it was research from like the, there was a presentation I think I was watching from the mid 2000s sometime they were basically saying that that kids with autism they just said she, she straight up said struggle with gender like the concept of you know yes. that your sex kind of correlates with a certain kind of role and behavior and just kind of like just the, the very concept of gender was very difficult for autistic people uh to to to, to yeah to to wrap their heads around essentially yeah i mean they say gender is a social construct anyway um a lot of people have different definitions for gender, but you know that's that's the popular narrative. Gender is a social construct, and and autistic and, people and that aren't. that understanding of it really appeals to autistic people, right? Because it's like, oh, this is something that that other people have decided on collectively, like culturally, we've decided this is how it should be. Whereas I think a lot of people who are not uh, autistic it's more innately under, like you can kind of see it typically you know like typically masculine behavior typically feminine behavior that kind of sort of informs the way uh society's structured you know like typically women are much more you know wired towards children and and people services and you know um like i think i think for a lot of of let's say neurotypical people that sort that whole gender sex alignment just kind of makes intuitive sense whereas i think it doesn't yeah. so much for our for autistic people for whom that oh it's a social construct is going to uh appeal i think yeah and there's also like a preference too for autistic people who struggle with sort of in-person communication to sort of gravitate towards online communities and mm -hmm. the autism online community is very enmeshed in social justice themes and I even, I mean, I was part of the online autism community for a period of time, but I sort of, you know, I got, it was a little, it was a little bit much, um, but I was also um, involved in like social justice online for part of the time during the pandemic. And one of the, one of the things I mentioned in the article I wrote is that you know, social rules aren't really usually made explicit, except in these online social justice communities. They have all of these like, you know, pastel infographics uh. explaining all of these social rules that they're like, oh, this makes sense. This is this is easy to follow. And, you know, a lot autistic people typically like rules. They provide like a sense of structure and predictability. Um, and so that's why I think they also tend to tend to like these these social justice communities that make everything very explicit and clear in their and all of their like social roles and their hierarchies and no like you can't you can't say this to this person because they hold this kind of identity and this kind of identity and it's you know i mean people make all kinds very of graphics and, and and to explain these things um is the gender nonconformity as common in the boys with autism as the girls with autism, do you think? Because I can think of some sort of famous examples of like Temple Grandin, for example, is a very famous individual with autism, and she's very gender nonconforming. But I can't think of any 
famous men with autism that are equally gender nonconforming? Well, females actually in general tend to be more gender nonconforming than males. I think that's also, um, my boyfriend Colin Wright wrote an article about this. Uh, there was, there, you know, the sex ratio flip in, uh, with people who identify as transgender, there's, it's, it used to be, you know, predominantly males and now there's a huge proportion of females who identify as transgender and that's because there's a, a lot of females who are more gender non-conforming than males and men maybe have to deal with some kind of um socialization too i think there's you know less room for males to be gender non-conforming but i mean there's a there's a bunch of research into this about um females being historically like more gender nonconforming. And now that the definition of transgender includes gender nonconformity, we're seeing a lot more people identify that way. But I'm curious, how is that being defined? Like what is male conformity and what is female conformity? I'd be interested to know like what, like what those parameters are in order to define what constitutes nonconformity? Because I think I think what one thing that really explains one of the many things that explains the sex ratio flip in transgender identified young people is um, the hypersexualization of of women of of girls. Um, the like the um, uh, you, you know online like the 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 immense amount of hardcore porn that's just inundating you know young people and like i think for a lot of girls this is one thing i harp on a lot about is is you could understand why seeing stuff like that hardcore you know usually just really degrading awful porn at like 12 13 years old is to be like <laughs> i don't want to be that you know like i want to opt out of that and i think and it's not just porn stuff it's like if you're on instagram it's like the, the what they call the kardashianization of of womanhood you know it's like just this this kind of you know uh, just everything so so glossed up and you know you're meant to just be like yeah this the sexy um well it's a very old-fashioned term but pin yeah. up doll whatever you know like and yeah. i think i think wanting to just distance themselves from that is something that's really yeah. appealing and boys don't have to deal with that they don't have to be like you know, they do have to be, you know, obviously there's the pressure to be the, you know, the the alpha chad or whatever it is, but it's still, it's like, uh, it, it, it's I think an it's very opt different. out for people. If they, if they feel yeah. like they can't compete within their sex, or if they feel like they, they don't measure up. I mean, this is something a lot of teenagers go through feeling inadequate and insecure. I mean, adopting a transgender identity is, is sort of like an opt out. It's... Uh-huh. Uh, and then I'm going to be something else. I'm, if I, if I don't feel like I'm, I'm measuring up within my sex, I can, I can be something else. So there's, yep. there's that. One of it doesn't feel to a lot of teenage boys too, though, yeah. who can't, um, who, who feel like, yeah, they aren't the, they aren't the gig get chat. And so it's like, oh, I guess, I guess I'll just be a girl because I, I, I can't be, you know, the, the, yeah, cream of the crop male. Anyway, sorry, go on, Aaron. One of the things that's, that I find fascinating is that autism is correlated with um, both types of gender dysphoria, both the homosexual childhood onset and AGP, and yet it manifests... In females. So there's no correlation between um, uh, autism spectrum disorder and homosexual transsexual and sexuality in males. 
but there is in females. In females. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yep. there's definitely a correlation between the AGP subtype of gender dysphoria and and yeah, autism. Hardcore. And yeah. they tend to be, you know, really into tech. And so it's just interesting that, you know, you got these two developmentally different pathways to gender dysphoria, but they're both correlated with autism. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, I, I figured as much, but like, I, I didn't know there was actual like, research into it. I'd like to see that. Yeah, the the, the very strong correlation between, uh, yeah, autogynophilia um, and and autism is, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty strong link. And I'm starting to kind of, it seems to make sense why, like that hyper internal focus that is, that is, uh, 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 autism you know um i think that the kind of it's kind of a theory i'm developing that i just don't have the uh credentials to develop but i feel like i'm on something but like this kind of uh in, in turning inward essentially of yeah. what should be an external uh an external drive um uh but yeah the the the, the correlation between homo female homosexual transsexuality and autism i don't know what that link is other than the hyper conflation of non of sex nonconformity. That's the only thing that they like, wear because it's like, okay, you're both same sex attracted, and this whole gender thing is too complicated. It's like, okay, so I must be male. Um, is why that could make sense, but spitballing here. Mm -hmm. I wonder though if there are additional pathways that we haven't been able to sort of glean on yet because it seems like there's so many people who have adopted a transgender identity now um i wonder if there's there's other pathways that research hasn't really like picked up on yet but i don't know if those necessarily have to do with gender dysphoria right um there yeah there could be definitely a lot of yeah things that could contribute to it but i think a lot of it too is just people feeling lonely and needing needing a cause needing a yeah. explanation you know and it and it appeals yeah, the, the identification appeals even uh, independent of any sort of psychological body, yeah, incongruence. But even in the childhood onset gender dysphoria cohort, in the you know the classical sense before this explosion, I I still think that there are nuances and different pathways within within that that have sort of been all sort of lumped together as as one diagnosis. But I, I wouldn't think. Because that's less in females, it's less correlated with homosexuality. It's still still strongly correlated, but not as strongly correlated as with boys. So if if you have all these straight girls and what will be gay girls both experiencing childhood onset gender dysphoria, I wouldn't think that those are the same thing. I don't think that they're the same gender dysphoria. I think one is related more to sexual orientation. And so I don't I have less insight into for the heterosexual girls, what would cause that gender dysphoria? What about um, obsessive compulsive disorder? I know this isn't, I mean, some people have sort of made the connection between gender dysphoria and OCD before, but I just sort of, I tend to think of it as kind of a form of OCD almost. There's like a whole, there's a whole bunch of like OCD related disorders, but if I'm imagining why, if a child who feels like distress over um their their sex and they desire to be the other sex like it it almost feels like maybe it's 
kind of like an intrusive thought, like, or they're just feeling distress about something and they, they pick their biology and they pick something that they feel like, or that they focus on and fixate on and they fixate on the desire to become the opposite sex. Um, I almost wonder if, if that sort of can explain why, why some children feel gender dysphoric. I mean, it's, this is different. My little boy likes, you know, pink and, and sparkles and stuff like that. I better take him to the gender clinic. Uh, but I, I do wonder like historically if that, if, if OCD can kind of explain in a way, you know, the, the, the thoughts that people have with gender dysphoria. Probably for yeah, very similar the... reasons as autism, because they both yeah. tend to hyperfixate on once they latch on to certain ideas. And I have OCD too, so I understand how it works. <laughs> I, um, I'm not, not, not like a severe form of OCD, but I definitely have like things that I do that aren't logical <laughs> that, um, give me sort of like a sense of like calm and I have to just, it's just sort of a routine that I have to, that I have to do, even though it doesn't make sense to anybody else. Uh, and I worry, you know, with, with the kids with autism, I mean, it seems like those with OCD, those um, targets of, of, of obsessive thinking tend, tend to be fairly stable over time. Like, Think I'm trying to think of people that I've worked with with OCD in the past, but yeah, their 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 objects of, of fixation tends to be sometimes lifelong. It, it doesn't tend to to change really rapidly, but with those with autism, that special interest can change overnight. Like they can be yeah. totally you know obsessed with something for a month, and then all of a sudden they find something else they're obsessed with, and it shifts. So I really worry about yeah. those kids. If those are the kids that are their special interest is gender and and yeah. the whole trans ideology, I mean, as no matter how strongly they may feel about it today, give it a month and that could, could completely change. And now they've altered their body. And I worry about them most of all, you know, because that I think they could present to a gender clinic with that really strong drive and obsession and, and fixation on it. And that, and I don't think clinicians, if they're not screening for autism and not seeing that intensity of that fixation, um, as maybe being related to autism, they're they're not understanding that that could very rapidly switch into some other special interest, and and now you've permanently altered their body. So I can see how they they could very quickly become detransitioners. Yeah, I mean and that's, that's what you were saying, Christina. The people that you that you talked to for that article, right? It's like it was their special interest, and that's yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say too, like, yeah, my life can kind of be like categorized by my special interests throughout the years. It's <laughs> de they've definitely have changed as I've gotten older. And I think uh, Dr. Kenneth Zucker too also made the same comparison. Like the special interests can explain why people are heavily fixated on gender identity and, and trans issues. There's so much, I mean, there's, it's a very like rich culture and community now like there's endless hours of videos you can watch learning all about the experiences of other people and I mean even like queer theory like there's countless like books and lectures they can really 
absorb themselves into if that was their special interest I probably if that was mine I would probably do that want to learn everything there is to know about it so that that's definitely something that Dr. Brad, Dr. Bradley, the psychiatrist that used to work with Sucker at their clinic on Ontario. She, I mean, she's been speaking publicly. She's still yeah. in practice and she's been speaking publicly about this too, saying, you know, we made a mistake um, that, you know, she, so there's two things that, that she said that stand out in my mind. One is about puberty blockers. She said, I don't think they're as reversible as we thought back mm -hmm. then. And, and two, she said, I think we really missed the autism piece. And I think a lot of these kids are just are just autistic. So it's, it's amazing that, that she's in a position where now she can step forward and start speaking mm -hmm. publicly about it. Yeah. And it's not to say that you can't be transgender and on the spectrum. Of course, it's just, we'd want to like rule out the false positives for people who aren't going to be, especially if they're young people, if they're not going to be happy transitioning. I mean, it's a lifelong for a lot of people. It's, it's a lifelong thing. It's, it's not something to be taken lightly and that you should screen for other other things going on. Well, especially if a young person uh, either doesn't have a diagnosis of autism yet, so they don't know that that is a factor or they have been diagnosed, but they maybe don't know much about it. I can, I can see mm -hmm. how it's not really informed consent then if you're not educating them like, okay, are you aware of you know, this is what autism means. And, you know, these are some of the traits. And because when you hear the detransitioners saying, well, I didn't understand my autism, or I didn't know I had autism. And yeah. now that I understand it, I'm able to look back on my life and reframe all of those experiences through yeah. the lens of my autism. And now it makes perfect sense. And I had mistaken that for gender dysphoria, which, which is what you speak to in, in your article. So it's not really informed consent then, if we're not screening for autism and educating about what that means so that people can make sense of their own experience. And then at least they can say, okay, I understand autism. I understand what you're saying. I understand my history of that, but I still think I have gender dysphoria. At least that and it's informed consent. Yeah. I mean, that's something that makes me angry too with the informed consent model is I hear from detransitioners, they were like deliberately misinformed by the people that were supposed to care for them, like telling them, you know, a 13 year old girl, you have a male brain and a female body. You have a medical condition that requires medical treatment. And I, I mean, that's so wrong. <laughs> or the, you know, the emotional blackmail too, like the, the false dilemma, you can have a, a live son or a dead daughter. I mean, this, this is not how medicine should be practiced. It's, it's totally wrong. You know, one part of the problems with the healthcare system for, for gender dysphoria now is activists have completely bullied out um, the mental health clinicians. So it's, it tends to just be primary care, um, like family doctors doing the assessments now and or even or nurse practitioners. And, and so they've removed a lot of the mental health like psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors out of the system of care. Yeah. And so the people that are left doing this work aren't savvy in mental health. You know, they did. So they, so they maybe don't have the skills to sort of understand what this looks like and frame this through a mental health lens. Yeah. And it's, it's really the affirmative model of care that I have a huge problem with. I mean, not medical transition altogether, just, you know, the affirmative model of care 
um, it, I mean, what they do in the Netherlands, like the, the Dutch model, at least, I mean, it's still problematic, but it's, uh, at least involves like individualized and thorough assessments and, you know, ruling out any other kind of, um, psychiatric or neurodevelopmental disorders and, I mean, there's at least a, a process behind it, but mm -hmm. here in the U.S. with the affirmative model of care, it's like you come in and you say you're transgender. Okay, you're transgender. Here's 30 minutes later, you get a prescription for testosterone. If, you know, that that's the story we've heard so many times with, with detransitioners who walk into Planned Parenthood and walk out with a prescription. Um, and it's, they end up a lot of them times being, being autistic and they, they self-diagnose with gender dysphoria because they for all the reasons we explained uh yeah they're just there has to be another way there's we have to be able to convince u.s medical organizations to walk back this model and and because yeah. and... with the dutch model i mean i know that there are always going to be people who who disagree even with the dutch model or or transition in general but that aside, I mean, with the Dutch model, with careful screening and a lot of mental health supports and social supports and, you know, a real robust system of care around people, we weren't seeing the same emotional and psychological instability in the trans population. We weren't seeing the societal problems that we're seeing now. I'm, it's, I think it, I think a more robust system was actually supportive of us and our mental health going through this because it's a complicated process. It's psychologically complicated. It's socially complicated, especially when our goal is to integrate. There's a lot of learning that goes along with that. And, and I think we really benefited from having more support. So I, I really, it, it saddens me that, you know, people like Matt Walsh are going after individual trans people when really it's the healthcare system that has yeah. done this to people. It's it's the healthcare. It's it, it's lied to us. It's it provided us with no support. It's not screening people properly. There's no emotional support, and and now people are targeting trans people for being unstable or, you know, not coping well or being inappropriate. But where has where has the support been? Like most people, most people don't even understand what gender dysphoria is like trans people, because they don't tell you in, in these, in, when you go for gender affirming care, nobody sits down with you and explains, okay, what you're experiencing is gender dysphoria. You maybe have the AGP subtype and th there's no education about what that is. And, and so mm -hmm. how can you blame a population of people who have been medicalized with no information, no screening, no supports, and then wonder why they're unstable? Yeah. And, but the, but the thing is like, I mean, this is what I, want to inform people about but one of the problems I see in like conservative media is you know it's not entertaining and so that's why they they dunk on trans people <laughs> because it's it's entertainment for them but it's not really it's not helping the situation at all especially not when the U.S. medical organizations they hold all the power so like you can ban you know gender affirming care in red states all you want but there are far more people being affected by the affirmative model care in blue states, and they're only going to change course if the U.S.-based medical orgs, you know, walk back the affirmative model care and, and favor individualized assessments. And I feel like, you know, we have a lot of evidence on our side. We have the better arguments. We have the moral higher ground. It's like, just use that. 
but you know, that doesn't, it's not conducive to a business model that, you know, turns, turns these like really hot political topics into entertainment. And, you know, I mean, you know, Dylan Mulvaney, it's, this is, this is somebody that they, they tend to talk about a lot. Definitely worth, I mean, definitely deserves some criticism for sure. But like, this is a person who was like a TikTok influencer. I mean, I think most TikTok influencers have that kind of annoying personality, big personality or whatever. But this is someone who puts out content every day. And I'm like, I just wonder, like, is it, someone should put like a, a counter to how many days the Daily Wire can go without talking about Dylan Mulvaney because every day it seems like it sets back to zero. It's I I just don't think this person's that important to you know the, There's definitely, the problems yeah. that we're seeing. If we're talking about pediatric medical transition and the affirmative model of care, uh women's sports and women's prisons, like these are all like really important issues that reasonable people would definitely agree with i mean depending on how you present it to them but it's it's hard to get people on your side when they just keep you know making things more difficult they're by, definitely uh, definitely more yeah. malicious and dangerous characters than than dylan yeah uh -huh. i mean dylan's definitely over the top and, and annoying and very it, it, matt, matt wash did did you know nail it when he said you know that that dylan even prior to transition was very over the top performative and attention seeking yeah and, and really has created a life around being probably in his mind an entertainer right it, yeah it's very performative way of going through life um that probably is it has nothing to do with gender dysphoria it's, it's probably that the that the you know the transition probably serves the purpose of well this really fits with my my goals of being highly performative and it gets me a lot mm -hmm. of attention and infamy but right, there's definitely people of... more harmful than someone who's just over the top performative yeah. absolutely and then also for somebody who's so pathologically driven by attention it was the healthcare providers in Dylan's uh, transition that should have screened for oh wait is this is this driven out of a pathological need for external attention and validation and not some internal uh, you know uh, yeah anyway I like that. You know, yeah. Anyway, they just make Dylan more famous and revered by the and protected by the left. That's why Dylan's getting to yeah, go on like, yeah. uh, on daytime talk shows now and stuff like that. Like they just they're making this person A more famous and more loved, and it's yeah. Yeah, like, Dylan <laughs> would be completely harmless if the institutions in place, whether the medical, the entertainment institution, the social media institutions, like if those if those institutions weren't in place, Dylan would be harmless. Dylan wouldn't have a platform. So mm -hmm. it's the institutions that I I wish you know the Matt Walshes of the world would would go after, not the individuals who are mis maybe misguided and and misinformed and and not maybe not very likable people, but would be harmless without the institutions that are um that are propping it, that behavior up but anyway sure. thank you thank you so much for your time today it's been a pleasure to to talk to you yeah thanks so much for having me yeah and, it's looking forward to to working with you guys yeah like likewise welcome to, welcome to our team cool thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast if you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. 
If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support. <laughs>